The Start On Demand. On demand. Without much warning, a stretch of Assiniboine Avenue in Westwood was closed to vehicular traffic to help give people more active spaces during the pandemic. But it's causing some issues, as we hear from an area resident. Also, with more people looking for places to walk, should we consider upgrading some of our outdoor running tracks? One city councillor thinks so, and will tell us why. We'll get the latest on the snowbirds crash that killed Captain Jen Casey. We'll get the latest on Donald Trump and hydroxychloroquine. And is one of the best soccer players in the world a Canadian? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Tuesday, May 19th podcast for The Start. Mentality was to go out and win at any cost. And Michael Jordan was scared that mentality wouldn't be understood, his daughter Jasmine Jordan tells us. And he was concerned that people weren't going to understand, you know, that these were sacrifices. And he had to be that brute teammate or, or ask that much to everybody else to become great. But after watching eight episodes so far of The Last Dance, Jasmine is thinking what most of us are thinking. I'm like, Dad, why wouldn't you want this to come out? Like, this is incredible. <laughs> Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, Michael Jordan, the subject of the 10-part documentary The Last Dance, which aired Sunday nights on ESPN in the States for the last few weeks, and then they would land on Netflix in Canada on Mondays, and I actually stayed up until 2 a.m. yesterday and watched them, so I ended up staying up to like 5 so I could watch the final two episodes of The Last Dance, but just an extraordinary series, regardless of whether or not you're a sports fan, uh, but a lot of people unhappy about learning that Michael Jordan wasn't all that nice a guy. So uh, why don't we start, actually, uh, Kelly Moore, before we even get into this, uh, you're the sports director here. Have you been watching The Last Dance? Well, I watched the first couple of shows, and it really, I I, I tried to get into it, but it just didn't resonate with me at all. So uh, I I, I have them on record. I I still might watch them at some point, uh, but... uh, it doesn't surprise me, though, that, that Michael Jordan, you know, was characterized somewhat as a villain here because he was so much more driven than most of the people that he played with. I could, I could see where, you know, there, there'd be some frustration and, and, and there would also be, you know, some confrontation, if you will, uh, with his teammates to, to rise to the level of play that he did uh, uh, but I don't think he's exclusive to that. I think if there were documentaries done on other uh, driven athletes, Brett, you'd probably see some similarities there. Yeah, his competitive drive, I think, almost bordered on insanity. And, and Greg, you, you, you've been noticing on uh, social media, I guess, that a lot of people are unhappy with what they learned about Jordan. Yeah, they're feeling as though they were fed a line or sold something that they didn't want to buy at some point in their life. Uh, uh, the Gatorade commercials, Be Like Mike, and uh, the Nike initiatives, Air Jordan uh, commercials. I, I think, <laughs> listen, if you're going to do a commercial and a brand is attaching themselves to you, whether it be McDonald's, uh, Coca-Cola, anybody else, they're going to want that best version of you. But I never got the impression that... Nike was trying to sell me anything other than trying to jump higher by buying their (laughs) shoes and to play basketball like Michael Jordan, not to be the type of person that he is. I didn't have any delusions that Gatorade was going to make me, uh, you know, transform into Michael Jordan, but Michael Jordan drank Gatorade. It gave him an advantage. He was the best athlete in the world at different times. So why wouldn't I try it? I, I think anybody who's looking any deeper than that um, was selling themselves and, and painting a picture for themselves that I don't think was being painted for us. I was as big a Michael Jordan, quote unquote, fan as there was for a decade of my life. I don't know if I was ever under any delusions that he was the nicest guy in the world. Hmm. Jeff Braun, you've been watching The Last Dance. Did you wrap it up yesterday? Oh yeah, I totally did, and I don't, I don't, maybe I'm cynical or something, but I honestly expected him to be uh, nastier than he was in this, mm-hmm. and 
like off the court, he seemed to be all smiles and that sort of thing. Like whenever, whatever people seem to be dismayed by seems to be him yelling at guys on the court to try harder, which I would, that's what I would expect from the world's greatest basketball player. Like Kelly was mentioning with his competitive drive and stuff. It's not like he was like going at two in the morning and like screaming into Horace Grant's bedroom window that he's, you know, that he needs to try harder or something like that. He just, it was all on the court and then in the locker room, he seemed like he was all smiles. And uh, Loren, have you been watching it? Yeah, I can't remember if I'm on episode three or four. I wasn't ever a huge basketball fan, but I'm just curious about sort of the takeaway from one of the legends and, and, and grew up knowing him and like, you know, Greg mentioned with the different commercials that you would follow and, and the be like Mike sentiment. I don't know, because I've been reading so much about it, I think I expected it to be worse because there was all this backlash about, you know, the hard, the, the challenge of watching someone who might have been your hero and then seeing how they might have behaved. And I know there's a couple of scenes that have stuck with people about the way he um, might have teased or some might say bullied the club GM, Jerry Krause, or just the way he refused an autograph or, you know, some people say, oh, it looks like sometimes he treated people like they didn't exist. I don't know, like in that moment, what's he seeing? What's he feeling? Is he deliberately going out of his way to be a jerk? Or is there something going on in that specific moment that the video won't necessarily capture but I, I for sure I can appreciate there are people out there and we've all talked about this before you have a hero and then you learn something about them and you're disappointed I remember talking about Garth Brooks loving him growing up and then hearing about you know infidelity and you're like oh I thought you were this nice family guy you're human and I that's part of it all too but it is hard to watch someone that you love and appreciated and then learning other things about them along the way. Warren texting us saying, we started watching The Last Dance and watched the first few, but we got disappointed with all his swearing and just not being the nice kind of guy we thought he was. Also too, dri- too driven, which was disappointing. Jeff Fortier, have you been watching it at all? I have not watched okay. any of it, but you know, sometimes, you know, if you want to be number one, sometimes you have to, you know, be a little dirty, you know? Yeah. So uh, that's doesn't surprise me. Would it make, do you want to meet your hero? Um, I don't even know who my hero is. <laughs> Spider Man. <laughs> We've Spider-Man. already met. Well, I, I think I, said, I, <laughs> I think I said I wanted to meet Tommy Lee, but uh, you know I expect him to be a little dirty, you know. So. <laughs> well, isn't that the name of their book? Yeah, the dirt. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb want to say a happy belated birthday to listener Aaron. Two weeks ago, Michael, her boyfriend, reaches out to us. Even though I call, when we met, I called him Mark. I told Greg his name is Mark, and I called him Mark because I was all nervous and flustered as we were getting ready to go make this delivery. But Michael reaches out to us on Instagram and says, Hey, my girlfriend's 30th birthday is coming up. She listens to you guys every morning. Loves CJOB. Can I buy, like, a CJOB shirt or something? So we looked into seeing if we had any shirts kicking around that we could just give him, not make him buy it. Uh, we didn't have any shirts, but we had a couple of coffee mugs, CJOB coffee lo- mugs with Blue Bomber logos on them. So I thought, well, why don't we just go say hello? And Loren, uh, you couldn't make it this weekend because you had uh, family stuff. Westman Journey. The Westman Journey, indeed. Well, Greg and I made the journey to South St. Vitel. And uh, Greg, it was funny because it was supposed to be a surprise... But then we stroll mm-hmm. up, and they're standing outside, uh, Michael, Aaron, and then his brother Brian and his girlfriend Sari, and uh, they, they waved us over. Mm-hmm. We were standing watching a family shovel a very large pile of dirt, and I, I almost wanted to jump in and, and help them because we were lurking around, and people must have been wondering, who are these guys standing here? Anyway, we got recognized, we got waved over, and uh, for whatever reason, uh, we seem to make Aaron's day. Yeah, so I'll just play a, a quick clip that you can see on our Instagram here. This was supposed to be a surprise. <laughs> how did you, how did you ruin it for yourself? How did you ruin it for yourself? I picked part of the pocket in his phone and I looked really quick. Oh my god! That, I was getting way too anxious. Really? <laughs> that seems like a trust issue there, Mac. I mean, she, he's looking. She's looking at his phone. I'm not getting involved in anything. Oh my god! You guys do not, did not have to come all the way. 
happy to do it. So, Michael, thank you for reaching out to us. Aaron, happy 30th birthday. We are happy to drop by. It was a nice way to start the long weekend. And if you want to see the entire video, it runs for about four minutes. Go to 680CJOB's Instagram. We would love for you to follow us there. Greg Mackling, what's coming up in sports? Plus, I got to see you, Brett, which was so nice. Yes. I haven't seen you in weeks, brother. It was right. Great. I know. Oh, I, that's so fun. Someone was asking the other day how you guys are doing. I was like, I don't know. I only I hear them like you guys do. I have no idea what they look like right now. Yeah, Greg looks great. <laughs> he looks great. It was, it was So, yes, of course, that was also the benefit. I got to see my buddy Greg, and uh, we missed you, Loren. So maybe uh, next time we can try to figure out a way to socially distance yard beers or something. I don't know. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we know that a lot more people are now out walking or biking because of COVID-19. And with more people getting out just for something to do, more people are out exploring different parts of the province and the city. Well, in a St. James neighborhood, that's raising some concerns. Just over a week ago, signs went up near Assiniboine Avenue and Westwood Drive, leaving residents uh, on that street surprised by what was going on letting them know that this would be closed to traffic from 8 a.m to 8 p.m to allow for more active transportation since then a growing number of people have been using it to bike walk or rollerblade loren and the issue here isn't that that's turned into this active transportation route. It's largely that area residents say they didn't know this change was coming. And that's presented challenges for people who are trying to drive uh, to and from their homes, get in and out of their driveways. And then, of course, raised from questions from people who are using this street now because they're wondering why cars are on it. There's also been traffic cameras added to that area. And residents are wondering if that's what the purpose is behind those cameras and whether this change might become something more permanent. Darlene Van Ruten lives in the area and joins us now. Good morning, Darlene. Good morning. How are you? We're good. Thank you. Let us give some background here. When did you first learn that the street was being closed? Was it really when those signs went up? Yes, it was approximately May 14th and it just, they just came up. Uh, Cinnaboyne Avenue is about a, a kilometer and a half. So uh, barricades went up on uh, Westwood, Rouge and Betson, uh, advising that from 8 to 8, um, it will be only one block um, vehicle access and close to general uh, cars. Oh, so you so you can if you live on Assiniboine, you can at least still drive your car on there and get into your driveway. That is true, but the confusing part of is the city has advised us that that doesn't apply to people that live on Assiniboine Avenue. But that's not what the sign says, and that's this new rule is very confusing for everybody because, and we can't seem to get an answer whether that is really true or not. So, has this ever happened in your neighborhood before, Darlene? We're a lot of us familiar with uh, the closing down of Wellington Crescent, Scotia Street, Wolseley. It's been that way for years. As extended active transportation routes on Sundays, and then, of course, at the beginning of this uh, pandemic, we saw the. The, the closures extend to seven days a week. Has this ever been a Sunday thing on Westwood or on Assiniboine Avenue in Westwood? No, it is not. And I've lived here 50 years. Uh, it is not. It's never happened to be uh, before as long as I've, I've known it. So it's caused uh, a bit of a flare up. When when you say flare up, Darlene, because, you know, Brett was asking about you, you can use it if you live on that street, but there's some confusion about those rules. And then for the people who are now coming into your neighborhood thinking they have sort of a one kilometer long stretch to safely bike or walk, they must be confused, too, as to why there's cars on the street. What sort of conflict has that caused in terms of both sides of the confusion there? Absolutely. I have been yelled at in my car personally. I know other neighbors have uh, as well. Um, just from people that biking or having kids on, on small vehicles, uh, small trikes, and wondering what we're doing there, and yet we're allowed there and we're going slow. Um, one thing that they've turned this into, this path, that, and I'm a walker. I walk uh, with my dog six kilometers a day there, so I totally under, appreciate it and understand it. But they have maintained this bus service all day long as well. So with the barricades, it's very hard for the bus to get around. And I think that's a, a, a different issue, but it is a safety issue for small children. It also raises with people um, going down to Cinnaboyne and using alternative, uh, following the rules and going up alternative roads in block sections, 
the smaller Basin streets are getting inundated with new traffic that these parents never had to face with. And they're wondering what's going on. Now, these traffic cameras as well, uh, there are, I believe, three cameras that have gone up? There were three cameras got, uh, that were up, one's at, at the end of my driveway. As soon as I acknowledged that I wanted to know the reasons, because there was no signage, not like a red light camera that says you now has a picture of a camera and you now being observed. They had no postings at all. Um, as soon as I, I asked that question, mine was taken down. The one on Rouge Road is still there, but the one on Betson has been taken down. And we still have not, no one's been able to answer to us what the data is going to be used for or why it was put up. And that gives a transparency issue to me for privacy concerns. Darlene, is, is this uh, those mobile traffic camera units that we might see in a school zone? Is that what was put up? No, these are very tall. They're on, on um, light posts. They're very tall. Uh-huh. You, can har- you can hardly see them. They're almost up as high as the bulb of a, of the actual street light and it's pointing to all west but i don't know if it's looking at houses or 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 just the roads i have no idea and i and we can't the optics of it we can't get the answers so you've raised questions to the city and that camera was removed i know you've also been in contact with the city councillor are there concerns overall darlene i mean I, i know you said you're a walker you appreciate that people are looking for new places to walk and run and bike and all the rest at the end of the day though is there concerns that this might become more of a permanent move and you'll have little say in the process? Well, there is concern for the simple reason is no one even approached us or or advised us that it was happening. So if we're out of the loop this much, and I'm the co-captain of the uh, the community watch group here on Assiniboine between Westwood and Rouge Road, if no one is notified, then um, transparency isn't obviously there. And so we don't know where this is going. And we would like those answers, uh, those questions answered. Darlene Van Ruten joining us live on 680 CJOB. Uh, I'll just say this, Darlene, before we let you go. I have a buddy who lives actually on that stretch of Assiniboine. I just sort of connected those dots as we were starting this segment. It's a lovely street, so I can understand why uh, they would want to turn that into uh, an active spot for people to go for a walk, but hopefully they can clear up some of the confusion. Thanks for alerting us to this. We appreciate it, Darlene. Thank you. Have a good day. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, question of the day at cjob.com, brought to you by Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first, you'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace, 204-832-6243. The question going into the May-long weekend, do you trust that Manitobans will be COVID-careful this May-long weekend? And the results of that, 78% said not really, 22% said definitely. Our updated question of the day, which will go up shortly at cjob.com, will have to do with what we're talking about right now. When is the last time you hit a track for your walk or run. Well, you might be paying more attention to your neighborhood track after we finish our interview with our next guest, Lauren. Yeah, he's been taking a hard look at more than a dozen tracks across the city as Winnipeggers take a look at just how many places we have to walk. As we were telling you in our last segment, it's one of the key observations of this pandemic that people might need more accessible places for active transportation. That's led to the closure of one street in St. James, which caused some questions and concerns, as we were just explaining to you at 745. And now we're taking a look at our tracks that might be underutilized and maybe in need of some repairs, Greg. Yeah, well, and all I can do is think about going to the mall uh, in the early hours of a day and all the mall walkers who might mm-hmm. be without a place to walk. Lots of questions here, and uh, maybe our city councillor for St. Vitel has some answers. Brian Maines joins us now. Good morning, councillor. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Uh, well, we always appreciate your time, sir. What what prompted you to get want to get out there and take a look at some of the city and school-operated-slash-owned tracks? Well, I'm... Two things, I guess. I mean, I've always been a runner, and uh, we built a new one in my ward last year. It's fantastic. My ward's well served now. But when the pandemic started, I started, you know, reading these articles and opinion pieces saying how we need more cycling infrastructure and more AT paths. And I thought, well, if this is about more places to walk, we shouldn't forget these walk-run tracks we have throughout the city. So. I had some time and uh, started going out to places I'd never been, Garden City Collegiate, Maples Collegiate, and checking out the tracks. I think I got to 21 of them, and uh, and so I produced a little report that uh, that uh, came out yesterday. So what's the verdict on what you saw? Um, 
Most of these are on school division property. This, is, this isn't like city arenas that are really on the city land. This is, we've got seven tracks, I think. So it's mostly school division. Most of them seem to have been built during the 60s. Most of them have declined quite a bit. I think we could bring up, I recommend upgrading eight of them, um, $3 million, uh, not that expensive compared to some other things we would do. It, it would it would really increase our capacity. It would update some stuff that hasn't been updated in a long time. It might be good for the walkers and runners out there. It also might be beneficial to the schools. But, Brian, you know, there's going to be also people out there that say, you know, in this time, this is not something we need to spend money on. What's your reaction to that? Sure. Some of my council colleagues will say that. And if Councillor Gillingham is listening and he would say, tell, tell them we have no money at the city, which is true. But this is if the federal and provincial governments are offering some stimulus funding, some, you know, money to get projects rebuilt uh, in 2010, federal money was used to help out Maples Track and to help out uh, Elmwood Track. So not crazy that we could uh, use some money from other levels of government and I don't, I don't think we need to put it all into cycling paths. Some of it, sure, but we've got this other infrastructure. People use it. We were out yesterday filming at uh, Belleville, College Belleville in Winter Park, and a woman stops and says, are you guys going to fix the track? That would be fantastic. So I think there's some, some real interest in it. I, I'm sure some of my colleagues say, well, I'd rather fix the arena at Grad Park than the track, and that's fair. That's totally up to them. But places like Sisler High School, we should, I think we should fix that track. That's, that's looking at age. St. Fatel City Councillor Brian Maines joins joining us on the start. And uh, just on the other side of it, I remember when they put in, a, I think it was like a single lane track all around the outside at Isaac Brock School. Oh, gosh, this is 30 years ago, Councillor. Do we have data that, that show that, that people use these walking tracks? Uh, uh, I'd just be curious to know uh, what sort of uh, empirical data, to borrow terminology uh, from some of your colleagues, that would, that would prove that, that people actually use this infrastructure. I don't think there's any empirical uh, chart out there that would show uh, use per track, but certainly, I mean, I would cut out the Westwood with Councillor Klein. We met some people there. So at Bellevue, not in my ward, um, filming yesterday at uh, at Victor Major in my ward, and there's only several people out using it. So, you know, it's not uh, it's not top priority, but it, it's something I don't think we should forget about if there is federal and provincial money to fix up. Because, I mean, by their nature, they're they're open to the public. You can't screen these off, really. So um, schools will get good use, but also the general public, which is really the goal here. I'm not a runner. I, I hate running, to be quite frank. But if I wanted to get involved in running, or want, I, I would imagine that being on a track would provide some added motivation. Is there any anything to that? Yeah, I think so. And I've been struck by people out there, you know, people with their kids on their little bikes learning to ride, people walking, seniors. So it's not all uh, 22-year-old uh, young men uh, doing sprint workouts, though there is some of that. But it's a mixture of ages and groups well used by uh, different groups in my ward, for sure. So uh, it's, it's just an interesting evolution. There was clearly a big investment. There's like four tracks in St. James, all quite fine facilities i'm sure in the 60s somebody put some money in and they've been uh, you know they've eroded over time but we can we can at least resurface them there's not a lot of maintenance it's not like you have to sweep them every day so it seems to me like yeah it, it would give some motivation for people to get out and use these tracks is there just a bigger conversation here councillor mays because we talked about just one of the things we're observing, one of the many ways we'll move forward post this pandemic is, is what can we learn from this? And it might be just having those more active transportation routes or bike paths and all the rest. And in our last segment, we were sharing with our listeners a conversation with a woman in St. James who's had her street temporarily closed with the exception of local traffic to allow more spaces for people to cycle and bike and walk. And that's raised some concerns for her in terms of just the transparency there. But is it possible we'll see more of those kinds of things in the future, more street closures or more changes, if not changes to the tracks? Yeah, I think I, I'm trying to get this the track issue in as part of that larger debate. I mean, if the answer is no, we're not doing any of that, there's no money, uh, or if the answer is we're going to put it all on arenas because those are really well used, that's fair enough. I get that. But uh, I think I'm just, my, my concern here was if we are going to have a big debate about cycling and walking, 
let's make sure you know these facilities that are just for walkers are are going to be part of that or walkers and runners you're not going to get hit by a bike on most tracks because it's just people walking and running so it you're you're correct i think this is part of a larger debate about how we come out of the pandemic but um i didn't want this this segment of what we built back in the 60s to get forgotten i think it's been overlooked for a long time so this might be the time to upgrade. They did it at Maples and Elmwood 10 years ago, so maybe time to do a few more. St. Vitale Councillor Brian Mays joining us live on 680 CJOB. Brian, thank you for this. Yeah, hey, thanks very much. It was just a few days ago that the snowbirds were flying over southern Manitoba as part of their mission to lift the collective spirits of Canadians during this COVID-19 pandemic. Their mission was to soar over the country, lifting the collective spirits of our nation during this pandemic. On Sunday, Operation Inspiration came to a crashing halt when one of the jets plummeted to the ground shortly after takeoff from the airport in Kamloops. The crash killed Captain Jen Casey, a public affairs officer, but the pilot, Captain Richard McDougall, did survive, Greg. Yeah, Global's Robin Gill is in Kamloops and joins us now with the latest on the lost and the investigation. Good morning, Robin. Good morning, guys. Yeah, just startling news uh, on the weekend, sitting, as so many of us do, glued to social media and the video uh, that very, very quickly became uh, published and, and spread uh, on social media. Robin is obviously at the, at the, at the core uh, of part of this investigation. We also know that uh, individuals in Kamloops, private citizens, rushed to help. What are you, what are you hearing from them about what they saw? Well, we spoke to several witnesses here in Kamloops. Um, most of them were people who had actually recorded it. They were here at the airport watching it, and they knew within seconds that something was terribly wrong. One paramedic who happened to be at the airport saw that the, the, the plane was spiraling and ran to the neighborhood, which isn't too far away where the actual um, plane ended up landing. And then witnesses there say that they heard a loud boom. They saw that two, uh, they could see that two seats had uh, ejected. They weren't sure about the condition of the pilot and his teammate. And when they got to the area, the backyard where they actually ended up landing, the house that the Captain McDougall landed on, they saw that this was a very, very um, terrible situation. Um, people, there were two nurses who actually were in the area. They happened to just be there. So they tried to come in and help. And People were trying to give her CPR, but they, they really saw that her condition was, was, was horrific, that she wasn't going to make it, and uh, that any efforts that they were making, which they had to do regardless, were futile. Now, as far as the investigation is concerned, uh, what do we know so far? Well, I'm at the airport right now, and I can tell you that the Snowbirds uh, jets are grounded. They're sitting on the tarmac there. They are Their operation has been paused indefinitely. A military team has arrived here in Kamloops. They are questioning the witnesses that we even spoke to. They are talking to people in the area, and they are scrutinizing that video that we all saw on social media. They're also going to be questioning the other pilots because they were on the ground when they saw that plane get into trouble. There are a lot of factors here at play because the weather was bad that day. They actually had delayed a flight. They were supposed to go to the Okanagan and do a flyover there, but they couldn't do that because weather was an issue. There was another plane. We don't know if it was the same plane that was involved in this incident. It was having technical and electrical problems. So that was another factor. So what the plan was was to head over to Comox, BC, and start the journey back east again, of course, that has all been put into pause. So with that plane you mentioned, Robin, it's not clear if that plane that was having the electrical issues was part of this uh, this group of two that had taken off afterwards. We don't know if that was, was the same plane. We don't know if that is the same plane at all. So, so as, as we move forward with this investigation, then how much will you mentioned the, the eyewitness accounts, but that video that so many of us have watched, hoping that there would be survival survivors from that. How much will the video come into factor here in terms of reviewing uh, the sounds that might have been heard or the actions that the pilot took afterwards? Well, we've spoken to a lot of experts that we often turn to aviation experts, and they have been looking at that video dozens and dozens of times, they say that what the pilot did was normal protocol to, to get to a higher altitude, to buy time, to get as far away from the ground to figure out 
what the next strategy is and that the only option at that point was to eject. So that is obviously going to be part of the investigation. It was sort of the last thing that he could have done to, 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 to save themselves. And unfortunately, his teammate did die in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the operation. Yeah, we know Captain Jen Casey lost her life. What is the condition? What do we know about Captain Richard McDougall at this point in time, Robin? Well, as you mentioned, Captain McDougall did land on the roof of a house. He was moaning in pain, according to uh, witnesses there. He did say that he had back pain, but he could wiggle his toes. He was taken to hospital. He has serious conditions, but the commander of the Snowbird says they are not life-threatening. One of the many stories posted at globalnews.ca on this uh, incident with the Snowbirds uh, is asking the question, who was the CF Snowbirds member killed in the crash? Captain Jen Casey being remembered as a beautiful person. Yeah, she's somebody that so many people in the media, our colleagues, knew so well. And they spoke so highly of her and said she was, as we all know, she was a former broadcaster, a former journalist. And they talk about how she was able to marry her, her, you know, her past career with her, with her love for the Snowbirds and the military. So it is really just a huge loss for, for them. It's a huge loss for, for us. It's a huge loss for Canada. Nova Scotia being mentioned so many times as well in all the wrong ways, Robin, in this with her hailing from Nova Scotia, really proud of her home community. And of course, they've been hit hard with the mass shooting there last month. And then, of course, the pandemic and the loss of uh, other uh, Navy members, uh, Air Force members uh, with the helicopter that went down a few weeks ago. So many just different tragic sides to the story. And it might be too soon for this question. So I appreciate you might not be able to answer it yet. But in the conversations about the snowboard, they, they do have cat crashes from time to time have questions been raised yet about you know the future of this canadian institution which so many of us love given the very high risk nature of the work that they do do Loren, it's actually been raised many times. It's been raised over the over several years. Whether these planes are too old, should they be up in in the air anymore? Um, they have been. Ex- they were supposed to be replaced a few years ago, but obviously budget constraints, etc. So they prolong their life until about you know 2030. And the, they say that they're supposed to start replacing them in 2026. That future is clearly up in the air as this investigation goes on. All right, Global. Rob, go, oh, go thanks, ahead, Robin. No, I just, I just uh, wanted to thank Robin for her work on this. This is obviously a, a difficult time for many Canadians, and uh, we appreciate you being there for us and, and bringing us uh, the latest. We look forward to uh, any more information you might have uh, coming up in the next hours and days. Take care of yourselves, guys. Right now, as you've been hearing in Global News with Jeff Braun, the President of the United States has been very active on Twitter over what was not a long weekend in the United States. Yeah, social media abuzz, not only with Trump's own tweets, but also reaction to his tweets and several news stories associated with Donald Trump. The U.S. President told the World Health Organization's leader that he plans to make his temporary funding freeze to the World Health Organization permanent unless he sees substantive improvements are made, which, of course, will widen the political fallout from the coronavirus pandemic. But there's but there's more. Yeah. In a letter to WHO Director General sent yesterday, Trump also said he'll reconsider the United States membership within the organization unless those improvements, quote, which are strongly suggested to include loosening its ties with China, end quote, are made within 90 days. Pardon me. 30 days. Global's Reggie Cicchini is in Washington and joins us now. Reggie, good morning. What is Washington saying about this letter to the WHO and do we know what other changes the president might be looking for? Well, look, the president has been complaining about the World Health Organization for uh, weeks, if not more than a month now, saying that uh, it's their fault that this disease, or at least it's partly their fault that this disease has run so rampantly around the country, while also saying that the WHO is too intertwined with the Chinese government, uh, and together that is what essentially led the U.S. to be in the situation that it's in. It's realistically, and in all reality, uh, uh, simply a game of deflection uh, to uh, to not let anybody see the 
actual shortcomings of the Trump administration and the failure to act quickly when the WHO and China were actively dealing with this uh, virus in early January. Uh, the president uh, simply says that, you know, had the WHO done its job to get medical experts into China, uh, the situation, you know, could have been better and, and blames China's transparency. This is simply uh, a tactic for the president to deflect the issues uh, that are ongoing in Washington right now, linked to COVID, linked to his own uh, drug use when it comes to hydroxychloroquine, and to simply just place the blame somewhere else. Well, and as Jeff Braun has been telling us in the news this morning, and you just alluded to it there, Trump admitted he's been taking that drug, hydroxychloroquine, for the past couple of weeks. What's the response been to that revelation? Well, look, there's been response from uh, all sides of this, from the medical world and from the from the world of lawmakers in Washington. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was on uh, CNN last night saying that she wished the president wasn't doing this uh, simply because uh, he it, it, it's it's you know it's a monkey see monkey do situation. There are a lot of people that will see the president doing something and think that it's okay. This goes against uh, the uh, what what the Food and Drug Administration is saying uh, that they caution against using this drug because it can give uh, heart problems to someone and ultimately lead to death as well. We know the president uh, is considered obese uh, when you deal with BMI, which is an outdated form of looking at something, but that's what the what the stats say. We know the president has a common form of heart disease, uh, and we know that he is taking Crestor uh, to lower cholesterol, and there are concerns that mixing Crestor and hydroxychloroquine could lead to nerve damage. And, you know, now that we have the press secretary confirming the president is actually taking this pill after that vague doctor's note last night. Uh, this is going to raise more questions throughout D.C. All sorts of questions about this, uh, Reggie. And, and in addition to that revelation uh, yesterday, CNN White House reported Caitlin Collins found herself in the middle of a firestorm of criticism for her move to remove her surgical mask immediately following a coronavirus update on Friday. And some people were asking, is she wearing the mask for the show? What's been the response to this move overall? Well, I mean, look, you know, when masks are, are removed, there's a reason you're removing the, the mask. But I think that the bigger question here is uh, why is the firestorm happening around a reporter who happened to take her mask off when there are political leaders in Washington, notably the president and oftentimes the vice president, who simply choose to not wear masks? This is an administration uh, who for days and weeks now have been countering what the actual medical advice that's being given to Americans by both their own pandemic task force and by the agencies uh, uh, that are charged with uh, dealing with the health of this country. Uh, it has been a well-documented fact that, yes, masks may not protect everyone, but they can stop you from uh, putting you know, uh, 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 droplets into the air to sicken somebody else. But the president simply doesn't listen to that messaging. He's now going against messaging when it comes to masks. He's going against messaging when it comes to medication. But the focus will shift to a reporter, again, as a game of deflection. So, Reggie, we're seeing... Uh many states, almost all of them now reopening to some extent. Uh, southeastern United States uh, seem to be leading the way in terms of what is open and the options for consumers to, to get back into the economy. What do you sense is next? We're hearing from New York and uh, the, the state of California that they're prepared to allow professional sports to start uh, in the next several weeks without fans of of course, uh, any other major milestones that we're looking for here in, in terms of the reopening of the American economy? Well, I think it's going to vary state by state, and it's particularly uh, of note in Texas, where they say they're going to allow for some sporting events to take place, because Texas has not seen any kind of decline in case numbers over the last several weeks. On the weekend, they posted their highest uh, daily case number count ever at 2,700. Just yesterday, Texas posted another 1,007 cases, uh, with still an active case count of 20,000, and this is going to pose problems, and this is really what health experts have been saying for weeks weeks now could pose problems in the future as these states open up and they continue to have a high number of infection rates as the days go by uh, it could lead to problems two and three weeks down the road as these states continue to open as more people gather around each other and as it gives an opportunity for this virus to continue to spread the United States is still seeing an active daily case count of more than 20 or 22,000 and that is problematic uh, as these states notably Texas and notably Florida continue to push to reopen Global's Reggie Cicchini joining us live on 680 CJOB. Reggie, thank you as always, sir. Thank you.
Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, many of us have been craving the return of professional sports. Over the weekend, several pro sports around the world restarted. I know one of our listeners texted us to express their enthusiasm for NASCAR. And tonight, we celebrate the return of the CJOB Sports Show as it returns to a full two-hour format. Yeah, and this would have made you happy, Brett. Uh, there was golf from Florida. I don't know if you saw any of that charity skins event featuring Dustin Johnson, Ricky Fowler, uh, Matthew Wolf, and Rory McIlroy. Did you catch any of it? No, I didn't. I was I was out golfing myself on Sunday. So, uh, was that on Sunday or Monday? I think it was on Sunday because uh, yesterday was not a holiday in the States. Yeah. Uh, they're going to have their uh, May long weekend next weekend. The Real Heroes, as one of our listeners was pointing out with regard to NASCAR, the Real Heroes 400 took place at the Darlington Raceway. And in Germany, the Bundesliga returned to the pitch. All of the aforementioned events taking place, of course, without fans in attendance, Loren. So we wanted to find out what did it look like and what's the future for sports as we move forward. Jeremy St. Louis is a former Winnipegger, former colleague of mine. He's now working uh, with CBS Sports in the States, and he's joining us now from Florida. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Lorraine. Great to hear you. Yeah, great to hear your voice too, Jeremy. I'm curious, you know, you're a huge sports fan. As a fan, not just a broadcaster, but as someone who just lives for sort of the sights and sounds of the game, what's it like watching some of these things without anyone in the stands? challenging certainly it's something that's very different and just listening to some of the players uh, you mentioned the Bundesliga just listening to some player interviews after the games on the weekend uh, they played the nine games this weekend a full round and the players talking about how it just is a little bit off-putting and it from a broadcast standpoint it's very interesting as a fan because you get to hear everything they're saying sometimes that's good sometimes that's not so good but it's certainly an eerie feeling but I think it's something that we're going to have to get used to because I think this is the way that sports is going to be uh, for the next uh, at least for the foreseeable future. So soccer football is your passion that's how you sort of broke on to the international scene in the broadcasting Fox Sports world and and uh, broadcasting the the football the soccer from around the world uh, Jeremy with the Bundesliga restarting this is just the beginning for Europe right what other countries are scheduled to restart their seasons and when Well Spain's La Liga is back in training and they're doing uh, vigorous testing they're looking to come back in June the English Premier League which is, uh, by all accounts, the most popular uh, soccer league in the world, certainly the most lucrative. They're looking at uh, coming back in June as well. Uh, They've started training, but it's a difficult situation in Britain because of the fact that case numbers are still going up there. So uh, they're kind of, they're, they're having to navigate a number of different issues. And so with the Premier League, there's a lot of pressure on the Premier League to come back because of the fact that it is such a lucrative league and it's not just the teams in the top division that are affected teams in the lower division as well there's a lot of teams that are sitting you know on the edge of a financial chasm right now and so they want to come back but the players themselves are sitting there going well wait a minute do we risk our health and i think that's something that we're going to hear about if you know every every professional athlete in the world is going to be having to make that choice or that decision and so right now it looks like i mean germany's back spain's coming back Uh, Italy's looking at coming back and England is also looking at coming back as well. Some of the Eastern European leagues are also looking uh, to come back or have already come back. So uh, I think Germany out of the gate first is, is kind of what everybody's looking at in terms of, you know, how leagues handle themselves, not just in Europe in, in soccer, but over here in North America as well. I know there are a lot of eyes that are on, you know, how things go in Germany and particularly in the coming week, uh, just to see how players, you know, how their health is, after playing a full round of matches. Now in Germany, Canadian Alfonso Davies is playing there. He's been capturing attention on the world stage. How good is he? He is a world-class player. Alfonso Davies is he's 19 years old. He's absolutely incredible. Uh, this kid is, is, is going to be, you know, by all accounts, it looks like he could be the greatest player that Canada has ever produced. He, at his young age, is already... You know, just such a phenomenal talent in Germany. He's playing at the biggest team in Germany, one of the biggest teams in the world, Bayern Munich, and he does not look overawed by the occasion. Now, this past weekend, he kind of picked up where he'd left off. Germany uh, in Bayern themselves replaced their coach earlier this season, and ever since the new coach has come in, uh, Davies has started every game. 
he had to actually make a position switch this year. He's, he's a converted winger. He usually plays on the wing, but he's actually had to slip back into a defensive position because of a, a defensive issues that Bayern have had. So they had to move their starting left back into the center and Davies back into the left back position. He's been in this position for 30 some games and he is already considered to be one of the top players at that position having just played such a limited amount of time. And he had a fantastic game on the weekend. He showed off all of his skills and all of his talents. And, I mean, if you're a Canadian and you're looking for a player to kind of latch on to, Alfonso Davies is a player that is a world-class talent and certainly, as I said, could be the best soccer talent that Canada's ever produced. It's it's great to hear that because, you know, I've been sitting here listening to you just talk about the different players and the different leagues, and I can certainly name a lot of top female talent when it comes to soccer in this country, and I think the women have really put themselves on the world stage years ago, and I don't know if I can say the same. This is just from myself now as a fan's perspective, Jeremy. I don't know if I can say the same in naming some really top quality uh, male players produced by this country. And so you mentioned the idea of latching onto the name. That's how a lot of kids get involved in sports or start following a team. They find someone with a connection and Alfonso Davies might be it for people who are looking to look forward to a sport that they already love. One of the things about Davies is that he's, he's just a good kid as well. I mean, this is a kid who, you know, he immigrated to Canada when he was five. He, he grew up in Edmonton playing in their system, you know, joined the Vancouver Whitecaps. I think he was 15 years old at that time, 14 years old. And so, you know, he's come through the Canadian system, which is something that is, is, there's always been a lot of criticism about how they develop players in Canada. And I think him coming through the system and being successful the way that he has been, played with the Whitecaps, um, you know, and then playing with Bayern Munich, going over to Germany and playing with Bayern Munich on such a big team. I think it's a real positive for the development of players in Canadian soccer. And, and he is part of a generation of players that there are a lot of really good young players that are coming through uh, the Canadian national team program right now that there's a lot to be hopeful for. Perhaps not for 2022. It's been, it's, it's been a challenge in terms of qualifying for 2022, and Canada has an uphill battle to try and get there. But certainly for 2026, when we are one of the host countries, that Canada team uh, could be a team that, that, that really is a special, special team and, I mean, could be only the second team that we've ever had to make it to the World Cup. CBS Sports broadcaster and reporter Jeremy St. Louis joins us from Florida this morning. He's a former Winnipegger, but Jeremy, you're never really a former Winnipegger. You just don't live here anymore. And so the the sport uh, du jour or, or the, the, the preferred sport in Canada is obviously hockey, uh, although the Canadian Football League might have something to say about that, especially in this market. What do you think is going to happen with the NBA, with MLB, with the National Hockey League in terms of of restarting their seasons. Do you, do you think this is going to be a popular move by fans? Uh, my kids play the, the video games all the time, so they're not really missing the game. They're, they're playing the games every single day with their friends, but they're, I think, a generation that's going to be uh, targeted for these restarts. Are they even going to be interested in watching hockey in the summertime if the NHL decides to, to restart things? Well, I'll tell you something. If the NHL restarts and there's hockey in the summertime, I will watch it every day that it is on. I just, I, I, early numbers in terms of the ratings for the Bundesliga, as an example, because they're the first real big league that's come back. The numbers were three times the ratings what they usually are. So people are going to watch. I think that, that coming back is obviously risky. I was reading yesterday a report from Major League Baseball about the stringent, uh, protocols that they want to put in place for a return and it is incredible the things that they want to do in terms of players coming back like and, and incredible in a way that it's going to be very very difficult so I really don't know if if they're going to be able to come back certainly the way that they are kind of envisioning or that fans are envisioning I think that it's a very cautious approach obviously has to be taken I think the NHL is kind of waiting to see what the NBA does they seem to kind of be in lockstep right now for some reason I'm not really too sure why that is perhaps because of the fact they both play in such closed venues in arenas so I think everybody's kind of waiting to see what the NBA is going to do and then Major League Baseball is talking about you know uh, hub cities and, and same thing that the NHL is doing and kind of a shortened season but the protocols that are going to have to be put in place are absolutely incredible. It's going to be very, very difficult, I think, for, for teams. I was listening to a thing this morning about college sports. There's a whole other uh, kettle of fish right there, college sports. So professional 
uh, sports is certainly challenging, and, and from the college ranks, it's going to be challenging as well. As a fan, I would love to see it all come back, but obviously I want to see it come back very safely. And, and I don't anticipate being able to go to a sporting event as a fan any time in the near future. Probably, I would think, close to a year before we can see fans back in stadiums. Have any athletes spoken about playing in front of fans uh, will we'll take away from the amount of energy they put into a game? Not to suggest that they will, won't be able to perform at all, but I mean, it must give them a little bit of extra boost playing in front of a, a massive crowd, and to have that taken away would be weird, to say the least. Absolutely. One of the guys I work with at CBS, a former Major League Baseball player, I work with a couple of former NBA guys too, and they've, they've all said, like, like, I can't imagine being not having that energy from the fans like it's going to take not just from a physical standpoint but you know you talk about the psychological edge as well that that the cheering of the crowd kind of pumps you up and i think that's why some sports i know the nfl's talked about it about pumping in artificial noise just to kind of you know make it a little bit more engaging for the players from a psychological standpoint because of the fact that they want to get that boost but obviously you can't replace the energy of you know, 40, 50, 60,000 people in a venue cheering at the right moment. Crowd noise is going to be just that noise. But uh, um, the former players that I've talked to have said they can't even imagine having to play in a, in a stadium that has no fans at all. It, it sounds almost like a bad laugh track from a 1980 sitcom, Jeremy, to pipe in the sound. It might work for one and two games, but I don't know if that would sustain you, you know, when you're down by uh, several points or up or all the rest. And so that's one of the things they're looking at. Is there anything else on the table? I know I saw some restaurants in the States. They have um, uh, fake dolls in the booths, you know, to give people, help people with physical distancing. And I think there's another league I saw where you can buy a cutout of yourself to put yourself in the stands. Uh, I think maybe it was for soccer. And so they're trying to get creative, but that will only take them so far until there's a return to some sort of normalcy, I would think. Yeah, there's a lot of people that that want things to come back. I think, you know, not to get political about anything, because I'm just a Canadian who lives down here. But just, you know, the way that things are going, people are anxious. People are, they want to get back out. They want to get back out doing things and going to restaurants. And that's in here in Miami, which is where I am. And in Orlando, they opened everything up as of yesterday, 50% capacity, that kind of thing. And people are going out. Traffic is up. Uh, you know, they haven't opened the beaches or anything like that. So so people are kind of still waiting on that. But, you know, it's that whole you want to get back to a sense of normalcy. And I think that the, the struggle for all of us, not just in the United States, but all of us around the world who've been in quarantine, is just that, you know, you just don't have that sense of normalcy and normalcy. And it affects your mental health. It affects everything, you know, and your job and everything else. So I think that people want to get back to that that sense of you know, that sense of that everything's okay. It's going to obviously uh, take some time. And sports is a big part of that. Sports is something that's always been that distraction that, that, that can take you away. I know that, you know, in countries like South America, you know, like soccer there is that's religion. It's life. It's, it's the distraction uh, from your daily life. And I think that that's what a lot of people have been missing. And that's why everybody's so anxious uh, for sports to come back. Jeremy St. Louis, former Winnipegger, working with CBS Sports, joining us live from Florida this morning. Thank you so much for the time, Jeremy. This has been great. Thanks very much, guys. Always great to come back and, uh, and talk to some Winnipeggers. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global. And on Instagram, at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.